Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Blimming, Warden of Cranmer Hall, and it's my privilege to bring to you some of the most interesting theological thinkers today. If you enjoy Talking Theology, do subscribe at your favourite podcast provider. Follow us on Twitter at TalkingTheo and share on social media. Thanks for listening. Now, on to today's episode. Is reading the Bible about more than simply looking for the right answer? What happens when you let children read a book of the Bible for themselves? What role should imagination play in enabling the scriptures to speak? And how can we all get to know the world of scripture? Welcome to this episode of Talking Theology with me, Philip Fleming. In today's show, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Melody Briggs. Melody is Director of Studies at Lindisfarne College of Theology. She's taught theology in a range of colleges, churches and mission organisations for the last 30 years and has written several books on the way children engage with scripture. So our question is, how did children encounter the Bible and what does that mean for us all today? Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the show. Melody Briggs, welcome to Talking Theology. Thank you, Philip. It's wonderful to be here. Melody, I wonder if you wouldn't mind starting by just telling us a little bit about yourself and what's your own journey as a theological educator look like? Well, I've been involved in the world of theological education since I was 25 years old. I am not going to tell you how long ago that was, Philip, but let's just say I've had a lot of experience, a few decades of experience, in fact. I started working as a theological educator in a mission context, but soon and rapidly moved into the church. Since then, I have worked in a variety of theological education institutions, initially writing distance learning courses, but then moving on to teaching in person. I've also worked for Durham University as the church-based strand tutor, helping to train youth workers to work in their community and in churches. Five years ago, when my children began leaving the homestead for greener pastures of university, I began working full-time for the first time in the world of theological education. I took on full-time employment at Lindisfarne College of Theology, where I now serve as their Director of Studies. Now, I know within your teaching, you teach in a wide area, but your academic research has specifically focused on the way in which children engage with the Bible. Can you tell me where did that kind of interest first come from? Really good question. Alongside serving as a theological educator, I have also served in the church as a youth worker and a children's worker. And in my role at Durham University, I was specifically training and teaching students to be children and youth workers in the church, as well as in other uh, charity-based capacities. In addition to that, we've got three children. And let me tell you, as a theological educator, that really focuses and concentrates the mind when it comes to how the church handles scripture with children. So the intersection of all these roles, my role as a theological educator, my off and on roles as youth and children's worker, and then being a parent, made me really keenly aware of what was going on out there in terms of resources available to children and youth workers when it comes to working with children. I really rapidly realized that there was a bit of a mismatch between what I had learned in the world of theology about how to handle scripture and what many of these resources do in their handling of scripture. I found that a lot of the resources on the market being made available for using 
for youth and children's workers, had one particular method of interpreting the Bible. This was the search for the right answer, the didactic answer, the answer that the resources wanted the children to learn. Very few of the resources gave the space for the children to discover Bible stories, and even fewer, as far as I could tell, stepped back and actually asked, how do children really interpret Bible stories? In fact, I can frankly say none of them did that. An area of the world of biblical studies that already interested me before this even happened was the area of how ordinary readers handle the Bible. Children, of course, could be classified as a subgroup of ordinary readers and how they interpret scripture. I also have an academic background in children's literature, so this all kind of converged for me. Children's literature theorists regularly ask questions about how children interpret text, so it occurred to me that asking similar questions about how children read the Bible and specifically Bible stories, could be quite a fruitful enterprise. Firstly, for my poor children and youth workers that I was training, and also my own children. And so this led me on a research journey. I asked a fundamental question that I had not seen anyone ask with any depth. What happens when children read Bible stories? You talk about that distinction between the, the didactic and the discovering approach to engaging with the Bible. And I know you've written about Therefore, the distinction between what children ought to take from the Bible, which I guess might be a more of didactic, what's the right answer approach? And you've pushed back against this idea that there ought to be a set of, I think you've called them imposed oughts. Can you talk a little bit about what the pitfall is of that didactic, that imposed oughts approach? Thank you. Let me begin by just reiterating and emphasising I'm a theological educator and by profession, and therefore I firmly believe in Christian education, because you might think that's not the case when you hear what I'm going to say. So all of this added to my surprise when I looked at these resources that were being used with children and what had been made for available for my youth and children's workers to use with children and teens. I was surprised to discover this rather limited approach to biblical interpretation. The approach seemed to be primarily organized around a moral and confessional agenda. And that agenda drove how the stories were interpreted. It went right, right against what I had been taught in my theological study. So to answer your question directly, pitfall number one was limiting the meaning of Bible stories to ethical and doctrinal lessons. I'd like to give you some examples from my research with children. So I worked with a group of 11 to 14-year-old children reading the whole Gospel of Luke. I gave them the whole Gospel of Luke and let them read it independently to find out what the, how they interpreted the Gospel of Luke. And then I talked to them about it. One 12-year-old girl, Stephanie, I have all the names are code names, by the way, was completely confused by the parable of the wicked tenants in the vineyard in Luke 20. This was, she said, because she thought all Bible stories were in her words. This is her words. They were all written about how Christians were supposed to behave. Since the vineyard owner kills the wicked tenants in that parable, and the vineyard owner clearly says the good guy, it looks like the parable is advocating killing people. This didn't go down well. Another example came from 11-year-old boy, Jack. I asked Jack to talk to me about what he thought Luke was about, not based on his reading, but what he learned it was about. And he said, very glumly, it's a set of rules I've got to obey in my life, isn't it? Jack said he learned this view of the gospel from his church. So both these children were church children. Both of them had grown up in the church. They'd also grown up learning about the Bible in the national curriculum at school. And 
in both cases, both institutions had taught them to view Bible stories as being about what they had to believe and how they had to behave. I hasten to emphasize that this is not just an issue in the church, it's also in the national curriculum. A different study that I worked with when I did my own research, uh, it looks specifically at how Bible stories are used in the national curriculum, and it discovered and exposed that Bible stories are basically used as a proof text for secular morality. This is really clear when you realize that the most commonly used passage, Bible passage in the National Curriculum is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's used not to discuss what the lawyer learns about himself, but it's used to discuss being nice to your neighbor. So that was pitfall number one. There's another. Pitfall number two is presenting the Bible to children as a hodgepodge of disconnected stories, as kind of holy Aesop's fables. One of the things I found out in my research is that children like to have the big picture. They actually work out meaning by puzzle solving. They look at the little details to work out the big picture, but they also look at the big picture to work out the little details. So they need the big picture to understand, and we often don't give that to them. One 11-year-old boy, Jake, who was a vicar's son, was absolutely indignant that he had never previously been given the whole Gospel of Luke to be read. This is an 11-year-old, okay? Seeing the connection between all the stories in Luke helped him to understand it. He said he'd never seen that before. Pitfall number three comes out of the first two, and it probably is the key one. It's the crux of the issue. This is modeling biblical interpretation as a search for a right answer. Remember, this is something I've learned as a parent. Remember, children are less likely to do what we say, and they're more likely to do what we do. So, if they see their teachers and their parents always seeking a right message from the Bible, because that's what we do with children, they'll think that's how you have to read the Bible too. And they'll come to view the Bible as a closed text with a fixed message. Most Bible stories are, in fact, complex and meaning-rich. Modeling this right-answer approach severely limits the impact of Bible stories. Is it any wonder, then, that teenagers eventually turn away from the Bible en masse? They are either going to be reacting against it as a handbook that's been imposed upon them with a bunch of lessons, or they're going to think they've learned all the lessons. They don't need it anymore. They're going to go on to the next thing in life. Either way, we're in trouble if we continue to use this, the Bible this way with children. I think we're already in that trouble, if I'm really honest with you. So to sum up, I think all these pitfalls come from narrowing the approach of the Bible as coming to it with an answer in hand and trying to get our young charges to see that answer. It's the model we're using whether intentionally or not intentionally. You've crystallized this about what an alternative approach might look like, Melody. And you've written about something called that you call a participatory reading of the Bible and about the way in which children can read the Bible experientially. Those are big words. I think I know what they mean. But can you just unpack them a little bit and say how they might give us a framework for how children can read the Bible if left to do so independently. Thank you, Philip. This gets right to the heart of my research. I'm going to restate the terms you just used and pointed out, connecting it to my actual research. So my research was into how children in Bibles interpret Bible stories. And my answer in a nutshell is they interpret them by participating in a dialogue with the story. And this dialogue generates an experience of the story. So there's the two words we're doing there, experience and participation. But as you said, it's a mouthful, so I'm going to try to unpack it a little bit. First of all, it helps you think of reading as an activity. And this is an activity that I like to describe as a dialogue, a dialogue between the story and the reader, what some theologians call a communication act. 
I'm not going to go down that path. So I think that when children read stories, they're participating in a dialogue with a story. That's the participation bit. They immerse themselves in the story world and they engage with what they find there. Experiential learning is a, a word from, from education and it's learning that comes through a de- direct experience of something. In this case, the experience comes through the engagement with the story, with the story world. So when I was working with the children, I found that they made sense of the Bible stories when they actively engaged with them, when they actually had the opportunity to actively engage with them on their own terms. The dialogue between the story and the child is a dialogue, and any good dialogue is two-way. This means the children listen to the stories, the text text gets to speak, and the children listen and seek to follow the directives of the text. They take the text for what it says. But they also bring their half to the dialogue, too. They don't listen passively. In fact, in my experience, they never listen passively when given the opportunity. They brought a number of strategies to the dialogue, um, and I refer to these strategies as interpretation. Their methods of interpretation were the strategies they used with learning or understanding the Bible. So here are some of the key strategies that I, that I took away from my work with the children. The first of these, and possibly the most important or most fundamental, is the imagination. Now, a number of, a year or so ago, you had a Talking Theology podcast with Walter Moberly. And Walter Moberly in that podcast advocated that adults read the Bible by allowing their imagination to run around in it. Well, let me just tell you that children do just that naturally. I discovered that for the children, imagination was a key interpretive tool. They used their imaginations to bring the stories to life. This isn't to depart from the Bible, to go off into some kind of flight of fantasy, but it's to make sense of what they're reading. One of the 14-year-old girls said to me specifically to explain, She said, if an image is created by Luke, that's when I read it, then that's what I think about. I think about that image in my head. A 12-year-old boy named Tarkin made sense of the Luke 22 story of Jesus giving the disciples instructions about the Passover by imagining it. The actual passage is a dialogue between Jesus and the disciples. He imagined the actions, and he followed the set of actions in the text exactly. He followed them through one at a time. Uh, imagined each of the disciples' actions in order to see, he said, what was happening. So he could see what was going on and understand it. Okay, so that's the first, imagination. Secondly, children interpret through empathy. Empathy for characters and empathy for the situation in the Bible stories. They use empathy to interpret. Empathy is important because it adds an emotive layer to the reading. Reading this experience that children have of a Bible world is not just intellectual. It's emotive as well. It's holistic, if I'm really honest. Children align with the characters they feel with them or against them. But lots of them felt against the characters they viewed as baddies. They attribute motions to the characters. They attribute motives and attitudes in order to make sense of the story. By way of example, there was 12-year-old Grace, who made sense of the Luke 15 parable of the lost coin by becoming the woman who lost the coin. She told me this story. And as she told the story, she went through the anxiety the woman experienced at losing the coin. Then she experienced the elation of finding the coin. And she concluded by phoning her friends on her mobile to tell them what she had done. Her empathy with the central character brought to life for her the whole story and helped her to understand the tension and the desire at the heart of the story, something we can often overlook. 
Another key reading incentive, and this might be the most important one, if the children, if you were to ask the children, the one they would talk about most importantly is the plot. Children read to find out what happens. They don't read to, they don't read stories to find out what they ought to believe, and they don't read stories to find out how they ought to behave. They read to come to the end of the story for the resolution. They want to know what happens. And they immerse themselves in the story world and want the full story experience. For the Gospel Luke, this works both for the individual stories in Luke and for the whole gospel. In reference to the whole gospel, one of the oldest girls, one of the oldest children I interviewed, was a 14-year-old named Lisa. She was a church child, and she had repeatedly encountered the story of Jesus' resurrection throughout her life. But she told me that reading the Gospel of Luke actually changed her whole view of the resurrection, of the sorry, of the crucifixion. She compared reading to do this. She compared reading all of Luke to watching a television series and watching the whole series on telly. She said of reading all of Luke, it was like if you watch on television a program, if you only watch it for the first time and you see someone get killed, you don't feel that emotional about it. But if you watch six episodes and then this character who's important to you gets killed, then you feel the connection and then it's emotional. She used a television analogy to describe her repeated previous experiences with the Gospel of Luke and with the crucifixion as just one-off episodes. But having read the whole gospel, she then said that the crucifixion, which came near the end of the series, came when she, after she had formed a strong bond with Jesus. And in her own words, as a result, she found the crucifixion was quite powerful. So those are some of the key interpretive moves that children make. There are actually many others, um, but those are some of the, the main ones that I think really uncovers what they do when they interpret a story, a Bible story. You've mentioned a number of children by name. I know another child that you, in your study, lamented the discrepancy between the Jesus he found reading Luke's gospel independently, as you encouraged him to do, Melody, and the, um, I think, polished and tamed Jesus that he'd always heard about through his church's children ministry. I, I guess the question that comes out of that is, what are the ways beyond engaging the imagination, beyond engaging empathy and helping children see the plot? What are the ways in which youth and children's ministry might be framed in a way that kind of helps the Bible to speak for itself and ensure it isn't kind of tamed and truncated in some sort of way? Thank you, Philip. That's possibly the key question or one of the key questions for me. Um, and I want to tell you some of the conclusions I came to from working with this particular group of children. First of all, we need to take the, the story itself as the starting point, not a particular lesson or moral we want to inculcate, but the story itself. Let the story be a story. Don't overlook the story experience. This means the whole story. Children will want to know what happens. That is not, it's not going to make sense to them if you don't allow them to have the whole story. This doesn't mean that anything goes. This doesn't mean they can just interpret away anything they want. They will engage in a dialogue if you help them to do that. So keep coming back to the story. Let it direct you and the children. Encourage the children within that dialogue. If your goal is teaching them something, the children will soon learn that there's some medicine hidden inside that spoonful of story. And the older they get, the more likely they are to reject the medicine. But some people are going to be worried about this, and let me just reassure you. Bible stories are t powerful tools in the hands of the Holy Spirit. Well, I don't know if hands is quite right, but you get my metaphor. Bible stories are quite powerful tools. The morals will not be abandoned. The Bible is full, full of ethics. 
The learning will strike much deeper, though, if the children come to the conclusion themselves. One of the boys I worked with after reading the whole of Luke said to me that he'd been convicted by reading Luke about the need to forgive his little brother. Another boy, John, was challenged by the Luke 14 parable of the Great Banquet to be more generous. Both of these children drew out morals and ethical understanding from the scripture without any kind of prompt from me. They'll also think theologically about scripture because, again, the Bible is full of theology. One of the 12-year-old girls I worked with, Elaine, really wrestled with the Luke 5 story of the healing of the paralytic because of the comparison Jesus makes between healing and forgiveness. This was a theological wrestling. And she came through her wrestling with, the, with what, trying to understand this story to quite a profound theological understanding. She said to me that in her words, she realized that forgiveness is a kind of healing of the soul. Okay, secondly, children like adults interpret through analogy. Now, this, in many ways, I would want to say that this is one of the interpretive moves they make. They interpret through analogy. They make sense of the story by comparing it to other things. Going back to Walter Moberly again, back to his podcast, he said that adults use soap operas to think through real life in the world, and he would like adults to approach scripture in the same way. Well, let me tell you, children do that naturally as well. They actually enter the world of the Bible and use it to think about their world. The children do it both ways. So they repeatedly use analogies to make sense of what they're reading in the Bible. I had Jesus compared to Superman to Harry Potter, to Aslan, but it also had children using scripture to make sense of things in their own lives. One 13-year-old girl, Sophie, who's having a hard time at school, used the story of Zacchaeus to help her think through the issues at school. Again, on her own initiative. I, for one, would really like the Bible to be one of the key points of comparison that children use to make sense of their world and their lives. They'll be able to do that if we actually let them wrestle with the story themselves and give them experience of the story and the story world. Okay, thirdly, it really helps to take an open-ended approach. Explore the Bible study, Bible stories together. Help the children to do the things I've been talking about. They'll help them to imagine. Help them to have empathy with the characters. They're going to like some of them and they're going to dislike others. They're going to call some goodies and they're going to call some baddies. But you're already winning if they're doing that because their identification is happening and that's how they learn. Let them bring stories to life. We, a lot of Sunday school resources already do this kind of thing positively. They just often angle it in a way that's unhelpful. So they use drama. They use pictures. They use crafts. They use godly play. They use film clips. These things are all really helpful to help children bring stories to life. And they can be open-ended if we use them well. Fourthly, you really need to make a safe place to ask questions. Let children wrestle with meaning. Let them puzzle it out. We used the term puzzling before. That's what they do. They they have to work at it to make sense. Actually, we do too. We just do it in a more disguised way. They'll remember an idea better if they come up with it themselves. The scary part here is they're going to ask hard questions. If they're doing that, good. You're getting somewhere. The Bible should raise questions. And this brings me to my final point in, in answer to your question. When you work with children, and this is a reassurance, you don't need to know the answer to all the questions. The Bible scholars certainly don't know the answer. I can tell you that. <laughs> it's, it's much more helpful to think of yourself as a tour guide to the Bible world, to the story world. Of course, like a tour guide, the more you know about the Bible world, about the story world, the better tour guide you will be. It's all about your approach. 
Sometimes the most informed guides are the worst because all they want to do is talk to you about what they know. When actually what you want to do is explore the place you're visiting. So to conclude, I want to say mutual discovery is really the way to go. You've highlighted five ways that we might help children engage with the Bible around story, analogy, an open-ended approach, asking questions and not needing to know all the answers. And you mentioned earlier, Melody, that, that, that children are a subset of ordinary readers of the Bible. So can I kind of move us out of the world of children reading the Bible and think a little bit about uh, other readers of the Bible, adult over 18s, for example? You've mentioned it a few points in, in our conversation this afternoon, but are there points of connection between you, the way that you found that, that children can read the Bible fruitfully and the way in which adults, we might be encouraged to read it fruitfully as well? Yes, thank you. First and foremost, I should say that the Bible reveals God to us. That's what we're reading it for. And my aim is to enable children to encounter Scripture, to encounter God through Scripture. And that's the same thing we're doing or should or we should be doing as adults. So what much of what I've said is also true of adults. Interestingly, when I was re- running this research a few years ago, I was at the same time running a big and very active church house group in which we did Bible studies every week. And quite frankly, much of what the adults were doing were the same as what the children were doing, just in a much more sophisticated way. Uh, so I would encourage adults to leave behind what they thought they knew about looking for the right answer or finding a little bit in the Bible that will help me to answer the problem I've got right now and get to know the world of Scripture. Get to know it. Get to know the contours of it. Immerse yourself in it. Let your imagination work with it. Not, again, to go off on flights to fantasy, but to actually ask what you're seeing and understanding. Let it become a familiar place. It's okay not to know the answers, but it's not okay not to wrestle with it. It's okay to want to talk to others about it. Children love to dialogue about what they're, what they're imagining and discovering. That's okay, too. Experience the world of Scripture and allow it to become part of how you think about your world. This is going back to what Walter Moberly says. Let it become one of your key reference points for thinking about your life. And this will help you to allow it to transform your own vision of reality. What are the challenges, Melody, do you think that, that make that hard? I'm thinking a number of people listening to this podcast will be teaching the Bible, say preaching on a Sunday. What are the things that make that way of engaging with the Bible hard? And what are the ways that preachers, for example, might preach in such a way as to make that possible for, for people in the congregations? Uh, well, one of the key things I think I have learned from this, one of the things that's really affected me is the importance of slowing down. The importance of slowing down and looking, paying attention to the details of the text. That's one of the things I've learned really from the children. They're aware of every detail and asking the significance of every detail. And I think that really helps us as adults dealing with scripture. We do tend to think we already know what's there and we skim by it. And actually scripture and Bible stories in particular, because that's my area where I was focusing. Bible stories are meaning rich. There's always more there. I don't think we can get to the bottom of it. And so, For preaching, that will mean that sometimes you'll preach on the same passage and give a completely different message because there's always more there. And do you think perhaps if we're too anxious to get to a right answer, we we perhaps speed up a bit and and, and miss some of those details in the way that we read the Bible? So slowing down and perhaps just using our imaginations and being prepared to think there's more to discover here might help us on our own personal Bible reading too. Yes, I agree. And another thing that occurs to me is that we sometimes don't allow stories to be stories. 
And I think that's a real, that really, uh, that really hinders us. So actually ask what are going on with the characters? What's going on with the setting? The setting is really important. You can get a huge amount just out of the setting of a story. It often has theological implications. So stopping and actually asking the story questions. Where are we? What's going on? Who's here? How might they be feeling? How are they responding? And don't just cut stories apart and take out a couple of little verses that seem to have the theological kernel inside the story husk, because that's really theologically not very helpful to actually treat the story as the husk out of which we must get, must dig a message. And I think we do that in sermons. And that's, of course, exactly what's being done with children. And both of those are actually a misleading approach to how stories work. If we're not allowing stories to function as stories, then we're always going to miss something. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about how this has shaped your own faith and relationship with Scripture. This is obviously something that was a hugely interesting piece of research and obviously affected your teaching at the time, but, but how has it affected your own journey of faith? First of all, it's made me really slow down and pay attention to the stories. I've really slowed down. Uh, I've realized just how meaning rich scripture is, and it's made me pay attention. Watching the children made, and see how much they were realizing by doing this made me do the same, and it's been really valuable for me. And in the same way, as I have done that, I've discovered and realized, to my delight, that there is no end. There is always going to be more. Even though I know Luke pretty well now, I would say I hardly know it at all. I've spent several years studying it quite in depth, and I feel like I've just scratched the surface. It's helped me realize how much, it's made me realize how much I don't know about the rest of scripture, even though I've been working with it throughout my professional life. But that's been exciting for me. That's not a negative thing. It's been an exciting thing for me. Um, C.S. Lewis, in his literary critic mode, says that all readers, including scholars, must seek to bring the story to life, and in this we mean Bible stories, in order to read it effectively. And that's really been come that's really come home for me. It's now one of my key aims in reading scripture is to let it come to life for me. To let it come to life for my own life, but just to let it come to life for what it is. And it's through it coming to life that it begins to impact my life and most importantly that it helps me to hear from God. Melody Briggs, you've given us a great example and encouragement to do that for ourselves. Thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology. It's been wonderful to be with you, Philip. Thank you for inviting me. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a theological college within St. John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at canmahal.com.